marginally a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. In today's episode, we will be talking to writer and journalist Hamid Ismailov. Hamid is the editor of the Central Asian Service at the BBC World Service, and he is the author of numerous books in Russian and in Uzbek, uh, which have been translated into English. His most recent book is The Devil's Dance, which we talk about in our interview a few times and that has a writer character, main character. So that's interesting insight into some of Hamid's writing process. A personal favorite of mine is The Railway, which has an untraditional structure and many fantastic characters. But more recently, he has written The Dead Lake about the area of Kazakhstan where nuclear testing had occurred previously and the poet and bin Laden and many other books. He was also formerly the BBC's writer-in-residence. We really enjoyed our conversation with him, and we think you will too. Thanks so much for joining us, Hamid. We're really excited to talk to you, actually. And I think Megan was already reading your new book, um, and she sent me over some screenshots, even though I couldn't see it myself. And it even talks about kind of writing and things like that. So we're really excited to talk to you about your new book, and congratulations on that. Thank you. You must be really excited. To kick off, maybe could you talk to us about, you know, just introduce kind of your day job and uh, your writing career. You are very prolific, so you have lots of books, and we'll link to a bio about them. But maybe just introduce how you fit both of those things in. Okay. My day job is a journalism, so I'm working for the BBC World Service, and I'm working for the last 24 years for the BBC. And I was blessed to work for this organization because it keeps me uh, in touch with my country, with Uzbekistan, first of all, and with Central Asia more widely and with the world even more widely. So because I consider myself an Uzbek and Russian primarily writer, though uh, little by little the Englishness is creeping in as well, you know, so but primarily I consider myself an, an Uzbek and Russian writer. Therefore, this connection with that part of the world is essential for me. So during the day job, I'm covering the developments in that part of the world, you know, and bringing the world news into that part of the world. So I'm connected quite strongly with Central Asia and with Russia. So that okay. is my day job, yeah. And then... Uh, during the night time or during the weekends, I'm writing. So usually my, uh, you know, writing season starts with the clock change. You might know that in uh, England, they change clock, you know, for the winter time. It happens uh, at the end of October. And then till the end of March, let's say, you've got so-called winter time. Uh, when the nights are long, you know, the evenings especially are very long, you know. So I'm uh, uh, using this part of the year to write my books during the evening time after the work when uh, I can spend three, four hours uh, daily to write my books. Yeah, and I remember, thank you very much for that introduction. 
I remember this event we were having in London that I organized and you spoke at, and I sort of mentioned to you that I was starting to write a novel. This was a couple years ago now. And you told me, well, you need to stop doing all of this stuff, you know, these extracurricular activities. And you told me about your writing routine. And I really appreciated that piece of advice. It kind of stuck with me. Obviously, it still sticks with me. And I guess for me, I had to move away here to Eastern Europe where I'm living right now just to kind of be able to make that routine. But do you feel, I mean, you do it in the winter. Do you feel like when you first started doing it, how did you come to that? How natural was it? It was quite uh, natural, but at the same time, it's funny to say, but uh, in my youth, for example, my season, my writing season would start in February. In February and last till the summertime. But at that time, I used to live in uh, Uzbekistan, in Tashkent. And now I'm thinking that I've cheated the sort of climate you know in fact uh, what I'm doing <laughs> yeah I'm doing exactly the same in fact you know because I'm going through the mm, winter time I'm using my uh, you know at the very end the second breath basically I'm using the same February as the second breath you know and I'm going into March April sometimes to May to finish my work, you know. Uh, I've just prolonged, I've extended this writing time in a way, uh, adapting myself to the climate of Britain. In your new book, uh, Megan, you sent me over some screenshots. I really liked, just in the first few pages, your character, I think it's Abdullah, is talking about uh, his sort of writing and how he came up with an idea for his story and, you know, this moment of inspiration. Is that... How much does that closely mimic, you know, your own experience of writing? And how much do you kind of write about writing? Uh, in fact, <laughs> what I discovered uh, reading all my books, basically, it's not just about writing. It's about storytelling. All of them, they are uh, more or less about storytelling. And uh, little by little, you know, with the age, I realized that generally what we are doing in this world is uh, sort of, you know, tell stories. Our history is storytelling, our myths, are, our past is storytelling. Basically, everything the human uh, kind does in this world, the majority of things are storytelling. Even in the, you know, in the science, basically, we're telling the story, but in different manner, in different genres. You know, basically, we are in this world for storytelling. And apparently, we're coming to hereafter with our stories, you know, once again. If our story is good, so we are sent to um, uh, paradise. If our story is bad, so we're sent to uh, the hell, you know. Therefore, uh, I'm training myself to tell good stories. Uh, and that's, I mean, it's a really big part of the... Central Asian literary tradition, right? You have a, especially a kind of oral tradition historically and these epic poems. And I mean, it's part of human life, right? But how much are you drawing on, I guess, your, because I know you, I've asked you before about Russian literature, about Central Asian literature. I know you read a lot and you're really passionate about literature overall. How much do you feel that you're part of that sort of wider literary tradition? And then in your intro, you said you're, you've got some Englishness sneaking in. Maybe can you tell us about that as well? You know, uh, Yes, I know and try to know quite a lot of storytelling techniques, but the problem with writing is as soon as you know the storytelling techniques, it doesn't work for you. You know, you have to break up the previous <laughs> traditions. You have to break up the previous uh, mode of storytelling in order to be original and in order to be uh, fresh. So creativity is not 
taught in a way, you know, though uh, there are plenty of uh, creativity courses or uh, creative writing courses, I don't believe them, you know. They're good for sort of, you know, knowing the techniques, but not to follow these techniques, just to break these techniques and invent the new ones. That is the problem, the biggest problem of writing, you know. You might know lots of techniques from uh, Dostoevsky, from Chekhov, from every other uh, writer but the problem as uh, you know Joseph Brodsky used to say you steal quite a lot but you hide all this stolen stuff so uh, <laughs> intricately and so uh, sort of artfully that nobody should should notice anything you've stolen you know it's funny this uh, episode is going to air in a week um, but this week we're airing kind of our responses to a writing prompt that we did on this podcast which was basically take something that you're writing and write it in the style of somebody else you know just as a warm-up or something like that so I really like and and we were also reading various other I think Ray Bradbury Megan was reading um, a quote from him about how you have to also stop stealing from other people how did you come to find your own voice and what was that process like for you? I think it's like, you know, like in ice skating, you know, first you do the mandatory program and I spent uh, 20 years of my life translating books, the best books, you know, from Uzbek classic literature into Russian, from Western classics into Uzbek and Russian, from Russian into Uzbek, from Persian into Russian, and so on and so forth. So 20 years of studying the styles, the sort of, you know, techniques, the mode of writing didn't pass for nothing. So I've learned apparently something. Then I started to, uh, at the same time, I was writing, you know, I was writing my poetry and I consider uh, it was quite original and I still consider it's quite original. Uh, but uh, then I started to write uh, not just the poetry, I started to write uh, initially the articles, uh, researching all these literature then i started to write my own books you know the prose uh, here when you've got the basis of uh, that literature within yourself so you can start then to create your own voice your own uh, tone your own style and how i mean Obviously, it changes over time, and you've been writing for a while. But do you think, I mean, did you have a kind of magic feeling where you knew, yes, I'm writing something that's really true to me, or has it evolved over time? Or have you not, do you still not know that you've reached that? Every time I'm writing, can you think, you know, I, I'm writing a sort of, I'm trying to write a unique thing, you know, not to repeat myself. Uh, for example, I told it several times to different people that I was writing the underground, yeah, the underground about Moscow, about the Moscow underground. And I wrote some uh, 50 odd pages, but all of a sudden I started to feel that I'm repeating the tone of one of my things, the previous things, you know, and I was quite unhappy about that, that I tore apart all these 50 pages and started completely afresh, you know, when I found a completely authentic tone for this particular, uh, uh, for this particular thing, you know, for this particular novel. So every novel is, has got 
its own style, its own tone, its own uh, sound and musicality. Uh, they shouldn't repeat each other. I'm not a person who sort of discovers some uh, kind of technique and then exploits it. There is nothing more dull and more uncreative for me, you know. I should be completely new for every new thing because every story has got its inner sort of authenticity. And the problem is to find this authenticity and to uh, sort of tune into this authenticity and then to make the melody out of this uh, story. Which is very poetic sounding, um, but maybe, I mean, how do you tune into that? Like what, what helps you in that process if we can get into more writing process? It's, you know, it's not all of a sudden an idea comes to me and I'm starting to write. It's like, uh, you know, sort of, you know, preparing a snowball, you know, you start from a small uh, snowball and then you think more and more. So the details are coming, the tone is coming together, the everything is clicking like in a puzzle, you know. And when you are ready with all this puzzle, then you start to write. For example, uh, talking about the same underground, the initially the character, the main character was a girl, uh, you know, but it didn't somehow work, it didn't click, you know. And then all of a sudden I decided that it should be Pushkin of nowadays, you know. And then it clicked and it worked extremely well for the whole uh, project. Um, I'm going to, I've been rapid fire asking you questions. So I want to let Megan, Megan, do you have any questions that you want to ask? Well, so I actually did, um, going back to your translation experience and your the book that's 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 out right now, The Devil's Dance, is, I understand that this is your first Uzbek novel that's been translated into English. And I just wanted to see how has that process been for you? How was that process for you, just from art, an artistic standpoint, having somebody else, especially because you are, you are fluent in all of the languages. It's not like it was translated into a book that you can't read. So how, how did that how did that work for you? Uh, you know, I'm quite relaxed about translations. The problem is that uh, I'm writing for my particular audiences. For example, if I write in Uzbek, so I write for the Uzbek audiences. I don't consider uh, for a second, for example, writing an Uzbek thing, you know, that the English person will be reading or the Spanish person will be reading it. I'm writing uh, for a particular audience, you know, for a particular reader. Mm -hmm. Everything which comes in translation is a bonus you know for me mm -hmm. and uh, basically being myself you know a translator I'm quite relaxed and I'm playing usually a role of the tennis wall you know if they hit uh, so I'm just returning you know but I'm not interfering into uh, sort of process of uh, translation basically I consider that uh, you know I wrote, and then uh, if someone decided to translate, he's fostering a child, you know, and there is no point of me as a parent to interfere into the bringing up a completely, I mean, a child in a completely different family. It'll cause lots of problems, you know. Therefore, I'm just uh, allowing the translator to foster this child as he or she wants. Is it different 
uh, are your your other books are written in Russian? Is that right? So you're saying that basically when you write in Uzbek, you're writing for like an Uzbek audience, and you're thinking about that audience. Is that different then? I mean, how is it different? I guess. It is quite different. Uh, uh, I was thinking quite a lot why I'm writing this particular thing in Uzbek, this particular thing in Russian, and it's very, very difficult to uh, uh, understand why it happens. I never translate my books from one language into another because the whole matter, the whole world is completely different, you know, and my perception of this world is completely different. Exactly the same is with the readers, you know, the Uzbek readers, uh, reader perceives the book completely differently than the English or the uh, Russian reader, especially uh, as the Russian reader in comparison to Russian. Russian is quite far apart from Uzbek. English is much closer to Uzbek in that sense, you know, and uh, therefore I'm explaining that the Uzbek works of mine will be working for English audiences much better than for Russian audiences. it's a very complicated issue, these languages, but uh, I can explain it, but it's extremely complicated because it's the world, you know, how do you mm, perceive the world? Uh, the languages, the same Uzbek or English or Russian, they are the ways of uh, not just describing this world, but perceiving this world as well, you know. And uh, those patterns which are sitting in our uh, mind, in our brain, are completely different. I'm saying it as a translator who worked, you know, both with Russian and with uh, Uzbek. Let me give an example. There is a genre which is called ghazal, which is extremely, extremely beautiful and well-developed in Persian languages and in Turkic languages, not in Arabic so much, but in Persian and in Turkic languages, it's absolutely brilliant form, you know, and when it's translated into Russian or into English, it completely uh, it's a completely disaster, you know, it doesn't work. <laughs> Why? Because both in Persian and in Uzbek, the verb comes at the end of the sentence, you know, and the, the end of the sentence is the most active place of the sentence. Whereas in Russian and in English, it's not the case, you know, and therefore when you are sort of artificially putting the sort of the the, the main word at the very end, yeah, it doesn't create the same effect, for example, in English or in Russian. Whereas in Uzbek and Persian, it's absolutely natural, you know. So there is... There is a way, for example, to translate in that sense, for example, in Russian, I tried the technique which is uh, sort of, you know, uh, putting the main word in the very beginning of the sentence, you know, so you can find uh, uh, some kind of round ways to, to go around of this problem, but the problem is that the languages are completely different tools of uh, perceiving this world, you know, and therefore, uh, as I'm saying, uh, so the things which I write in Uzbek couldn't be written by myself in Russian or in English. Yeah, no, I think it's so interesting. And, I, you know, just the way that you get into those, I mean, really, you're in, involved so deeply in English, Russian and Uzbek. Uh, so it's really poetic examples that you just gave. 
I wanted to talk to you about inspiration. So, I mean, you touched on it a little bit before, but how long, I mean, these are sort of technical questions, but feel free to take the answer any way you want. But basically, what is your process? Like, when does a character hit you? When do you become inspired by something? How long does that sort of process? I mean, how many books are you currently fostering right now? Uh, generally, I'm constantly, especially during, uh, you know, I mean, since my youth, let's say, when I was 20, uh, 22, for example, you know, I used to have five, six plots or projects working at the same time. Yeah. Many of them, they haven't been finished and they stay with me for years and years and years. For example, I wanted uh, to write a thing about uh, Antarctic, for example. You know, I was addicted to Antarctic in my youth. I was dreaming about Antarctic and so on and so forth. So I wanted to write about that. It stayed for me for years and years and years. And finally, in one of the things, I decided to write it. Or, for example, The Dead Lake. It's the story about Kazakh boy, you know, whom I met at the end of the 1980s. I met him in the train. You know, he was, uh, by his uh, sort of, you know, appearance, 10, 12 years old boy, absolutely natural boy. But all of a sudden it turned out that he was 28 years old man. You know, and the story of him who lived next to the nuclear polygon, uh, nuclear site, you know, became the story of the Dead Lake. But it stayed with me for maybe 25, 30 years until something clicked inside of me and I decided to write this particular story. So there are many stories which are still in the sort of, you know, in the coffers of my mind or whatever, you know, and I'm still waiting when they pop up, you know, and then I'll start to write them. So there are lots of undone stories uh, which I'm keeping to myself and they, you know, it comes it comes with uh, some click, it comes with some circumstances, it comes with something when it clicks and says, you must write this particular novel, you know. Now I'm in the... I've just finished a novel, which I wrote in English, in fact. But all of a sudden, I realized that I've got strength to carry on with completely different Russian novel, which I'm starting now. Hmm. So it's like you you find that missing puzzle piece, yeah. as you were talking earlier, yes, yes. and then it all comes together. Yes. Well, so on that, how then do you handle your, your research process? Because you're... The, the novel of yours that's just out um, that I'm reading is historical in two senses. You know, the, the structure of the novel within the novel, Abdul, is that's in the 1930s, but then it also goes back centuries. So how, how do you handle then the research process along with this, what Olivia and I call kind of your incubation period, which could, like you said, last decades? Yeah. Uh that incubation period is a time of research as well, you know, because, uh, as I'm saying, because it stays with you for years and years, parallelly, you are researching uh, the things and then maybe because of the research it clicks. But at the same time, as you are saying, I put aside quite a lot of time for research, you know, and uh, for Devil's Dance. Initially, I think I decided to write a novel about the great game. 
yeah and then i started mm -hmm. to search for the documents in uh, libraries of britain you know i've collected a huge huge uh, collection of the documents of the great game not just from british library or from liverpool governmental office from india office from all kind of places including even the churches english churches so i've collected quite a lot of material to write a novel about the great game but then because something has happened either i read uh, somewhere or someone told me about the novel which uh, Abdullah Kadri, our iconic writer, wanted to write but didn't write. And all of a sudden I realized that uh, this novel was about the time of the great game. Mm -hmm. And I have collected lots of material which is not available in Uzbekistan, you know, uh, which is uh, available here but not in Uzbekistan. And nobody in Uzbekistan knows about this material, you know, though the, uh, this material is about uh, our country and I decided to bring it together to marry uh, uh, those documents with the story which Abdullah Qadri wanted to write you know that was the click when all of a sudden the devil's dances clicked and uh, started to started to look as a sort of you know worthwhile project yeah and how do you distribute your work in Uzbek, for example, on this Devil's Dance book in Uzbekistan? Is it published? It was uh, written in 2012, and I decided to publish, for the first time in the history of Uzbek literature, I decided to publish this book uh, chapter by chapter on Facebook. And all of a sudden, it, it went viral, you know, people were sharing it, people were uh, publishing it on their websites, and it went viral. So I was quite pleased with it. Then uh, I published the ebook of that one. And when President Karimov died, immediately after his death, several people decided to clandestinely to publish it in Uzbekistan as well, you know. I was horrified because they could... They have, uh, they haven't been in touch with me. They haven't got my consent or whatever. And I was quite afraid for them, for their security. But it seems that everything was all, all right with them. They published a thousand copies or something like that clandestinely and they distributed it. So you have a sort of Samizdat situation in Uzbekistan right now. And what was the reaction? I mean, it must be amazing to, I mean, you haven't been back to Uzbekistan for a long time, but what was the reaction and how did that feel for you? The person uh, who published it, uh, he said that uh, it's the best Uzbek novel of last 100 years uh, after this, you know, after this Abdullah Kadri's uh, novels, you know. And uh, Abdullah Kadri wanted to write this novel, which I wrote for him in a way, yeah, in his mind, uh, in his mind. So, and he used to say that this novel would supersede all he has written before you he had written before so i tried my best to fulfill his dream you know yeah that i mean it's amazing actually and i mean just personally but we don't have to keep this in if you don't want to but uh, do you think there's any chance you'll go back to uzbekistan new government lots of people i talk to in the region are cautiously optimistic 
Mm, I'm not very optimistic, you know, especially because uh, last year on the 1st of March, I was in Uzbekistan and I wasn't allowed into Uzbekistan. I was kicked out. It's already the new authorities who kicked me out mm. the, from the airport, you know, so therefore it's quite difficult to see why they should change or their uh, sort of, you know, relationship to, towards me. Yeah, okay. Didn't know that story. Okay. I wanted to ask a little bit about character development. So in The Railway, which I was the first book of yours that I read, um, there are just so many, for listeners, there are so many different, um, really amazing characters that are in this book. And just, you know, everyone is so vibrant. And it's basically like a whole village of really well-developed characters. So how do you go about that process? Generally, I don't invent characters, you know, I see them in my life, you know, I look around, I remember, especially when you remember your childhood, when your feelings were fresh, you know, you live through people enjoying sort of, you know, free uh, observation possibility. Nobody nobody is afraid of you and you are watching people around you, you are learning, you are looking. Uh, basically, many characters, they are coming from, from my childhood. But at the same time, I still believe that uh, I haven't lost this curiosity. I look around, I watch people, I watch their behavior, I watch all kind of sort of, you know, uh, strangeness in every character. So I'm trying to uh, watch people, observe people. And, okay, this is a process question. It's probably a little bit boring for you compared to, I've read a lot of your interviews lately, but um, I wanted to just hear about, I mean, how many, so you read a a draft of a book, like how close to finish is that? And, uh, you know, how, what is your sort of editing, redrafting and so on? What is that process like? So usually I start writing, uh, I mean, when I'm ready in my mind, yeah, first of all, I'm thinking through everything, I've got the clear idea, more or less clear idea what I'm going to write about, yeah, it's more about the musicality and the tone of the things which I have to catch in my writing, rather than the, the, the whole business or the whole plot or whatever, you know. The big picture is in my mind. But then I start to write. And I'm writing, uh, you know, with a pen, handwriting, basically. So handwriting, that is the first stage. After the handwriting, when the uh, thing is finished, I type it. Usually I type it myself. Very, very rarely I give it to someone. I mean, I used to give it someone, but now I haven't got this uh, possibility because people are not typing anymore. You know, you can't find the typists or whatever. So usually I type and edit at the same time. Then there is the stage which <laughs> I've got the copyright for, you know. I. I uh, print out on a sort of normal A4 pages, but then I uh, stick these pages together in a long sort of sheets, you know, and then I put this novel uh, onto my wall, you know, I hang onto my wall on the long sheets of the uh, A4 papers stuck together, yeah? So... I've got the whole novel in front of me, you know, then I'm looking at the composition of it, where it's sort of, you know, too thick, where it's thin, why thin, why thick, what should I change, should I change or not, sort of, you know, the grand composition. 
So then, after that, I uh, sort of introduce all these uh, changes or whatever, you know, balancing uh, acts, and then the thing is more or less ready. Then I give it to my friends or to uh, readers, to editors, and uh, if they've got uh, something to say, so then I uh, listen to them, and that is the process of preparing the novel. But I know that you never... Yet, I'm not a sort of, you know, uh, perfection is 100% perfectionist. You know, it's very difficult to get 100% of you what you want, you know. I usually, I'm happy with 80-90%. If 80-90% of what I wanted is achieved, so I consider that the job is done. But how do you know, how do you know when you're at 80 or 90%? I mean, do you get a sort of peaceful feeling or... I just sort of, you know, could compare it with this mental picture of the things which I wanted to. I look at my initial, you know, uh, notes, for example, what I wanted, how I wanted to do this thing, you know, and I compare with my initial feelings, with my initial, though many things are changing uh, during the process but at the same time I keep the notes of uh, what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do and how many of these like winter cycles does it usually take like are you writing a book a year basically or two books a year I mean for the last let's say for the last 10-15 years it was a book uh, for a season okay and then this year you've got a second book on the go yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes it happens like that. Yeah, sometimes it happens uh, that, for example, the Devil's Dance took two year, two seasons to finish. And do you, when it's taking two seasons, then you know it starts to be light, and you just take a break? Yes, I take, I take usually break, but at the same time, it, in a way, it bubbles in your mind, uh, you know, through, throughout the break as well. It uh, relaxed thinking rather than the uh, completely uh, forgetting the thing yeah Megan uh, sorry <laughs> doing my rapid fire questions again no 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 it's good I was just thinking about um I don't know it just all sounds very familiar to me so mm-hmm. one thing that we talked about and you actually talked about it in your introduction but we ask all our guests this because the the podcast is really about how you balance like your day job and your writing life and and maybe why you don't necessarily want to give up your writing or your day job. Um, so you talked about how, you know, your day job keeps you in touch with Uzbekistan and with the sort of former Soviet Union in general. Uh, is that, do you wish you could write full time? I tried several times in my life. I tried this kind of model, you know, I had the possibility of doing that. But uh, I think that uh, your mind needs a breathing space, you know, when it's uh, when it, uh, as I'm saying, bubbles on its own, you know, apparently busy with other things. But at the same time, in your subconsciousness, doing its business, you know, with uh, your plot, with your uh, writing and so on and so forth. It's more about balancing rather than the sort of one one business only you know i've tried but i failed you know i am a kind of person who needs this balancing act who needs the you know interaction with the society interaction with people and at the same time a privacy for writing that's how you get what then goes in your novels right if you spend all of your time in your house or your flat with staring at pages taped to the wall you don't get those puzzle pieces i think so i think so 
I think so. As I'm saying, honestly, I've tried several times in my life. Uh, I mean, it works, for example, for a particular novel, but then what? Then what? You are sort of, you know, cutting off the source of information, source of inspiration, source of characters, source of uh, human life and human conditions. You are just isolating yourself to your memory and that's it. Right. And and I think your your choice of, of profession also, you know, from being a translator through being working in journalism, I mean it it's all still related to telling stories. It's just different kinds and in different ways. Yeah, I was blessed with the my sort of career, you know, because uh being always able to earn by my storytelling in different <laughs> in different forms, you know. Well, do you find then that the balancing act is easier for you because of that, because you stay in touch with, I guess, the core values of all of your careers from, you know, writer to, to, to working in, in, in journalism? You know, that storytelling core runs through your life as a thread, or do you find, well, I'm, I'm, you probably already have the answer to this, but um, you know, there like like for instance, Olivia's profession is so completely different from writing. Um, mine is also related to writing. I, I index nonfiction books, so I I you know stay in contact with that. But I, I don't know. For me, I th- I would find it extremely difficult to have to switch completely switch tracks from from writing to doing something totally unrelated. I lost the question yeah. there, sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I've got your question. You know, the main thing is to live through something, you know? I mean, if your career gives the, your chance, for example, to live through something, for example, I was blessed with this journalistic job because I went to different places, to different to prisons, to places where... People can't live at all, just survive, for example, you know. I went to different countries, to different... I've seen quite a lot because of the journalism. If you are living an interesting life, I mean, it reflects in your uh, writing as well. Though though it's not a sort of, you know, absolute uh, truth, because uh, some people just live uh, a life of librarian, for example, like Borges, for example, you know. It depends on the, on the kind of literature which you are writing. Is it Hemingwayan writing? Is it Kafkian writing? Is it sort of Borgesian writing? So it depends. But but uh, yeah, different different stories for different people. Yeah, and in in a way, I guess like a lot of times, I think one one of the reasons that we started doing this podcast is that you know we felt that so much of writing discussions is all about you know how to be a full time writer, or all the different ways that you can fit that in. But maybe there are so many different parts of yourself that, as you say, like you really want to be in touch with the world and that's a really important part of who you are and it's not like you have to be a writer so you have to divorce all these other parts of yourself. Mm. I mean, you need the devotion for writing. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, you don't want to, 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 you know, uh, to become... Uh, as sort of you know, bookworm, you know, or c- c- writing worm, for example, you want to live <laughs> your life as well. So, so therefore, I mean, the best thing, what I found like, here in England, there's sort of you know the expression balancing, balancing, balancing. So, 
It's said always in Islam as well as as about the sort of middle path, you know, is a middle way. You never go for the extremes, you know. You are in the middle. You are balancing sort of, you know, all extremes. So it's interesting to live the uh, the interesting life. At the same time, it's interesting to write about interesting life, you know, <laughs> and write interestingly about interesting life. Do you have a story about a time? It sounds easy it sounds like like anything in retrospect or when you're on a podcast it's easy to talk about it but is, do you have a story about a time when that was actually really difficult for you to balance or to find that balance generally i find that like, i'm writing uh, always not because of some things but despite of uh, things you know it's a kind of uh, resistance to something you know uh, usually my uh, circumstances of my life i always or oh, the majority of times we're against writing, you know, but uh, at the same time, maybe that is the sort of, you know, the challenge and the driving force behind my writing, that I challenge these uh, circumstances and I'm trying to write despite of the circumstances. And did you ever think about giving up? Yes, uh, but... It depends on your character and your uh, sort of, you know, type of personality. I love people and I meet people, especially during my working hours. So I've got plenty of possibilities of interact with people, you know. So I can extend it to the, for example, living in England, I'm always thinking to become a member of one of the clubs, you know, but at the same time, I'm not becoming. Or, for example, my wife goes to Scottish dancers and she invites me always to these Scottish dancers and I want to go there. But at the same time, you have to give up if you are writing, for example. So I'm always struggling this sort of, you know, these parts of my life. On the one hand, I want to be, for example, a part of Scottish dancers, a part of English club, a part of this and that. But at the same time, you have to choose, you know, you have to mm. give up with something. You want to write more. Yes. Yeah. 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 I dream that one day I'll be. Uh, I mean, the best the best scenario is to be part of this Scottish dancers club and write about this Scottish dancers club. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good metaphor as well. And it kind of circles back to what you told me before. It's like you do have to make this choice. And especially, I think, if you have a day job, there's only so many hours that you have. Yeah. Uh, what do you do when you're not writing? So when it's not your season, how do you relax? Oh, because I've got a family, so could either we are... I mean, first of all, I'm working, yes. Uh, when I'm not writing, so I'm researching, I'm preparing myself for the next season uh, during my sort of, you know, free hours. Apart from that, uh, summertime is usually, you know, for all kind of events or holidays, going somewhere, you know, seeing uh, relatives or whatever. But at the same time, something is brewing, always brewing in mind, you know, preparing yourself for the next season. It's like the football players, you know, they've got uh, sort of, you know, summer holidays, but at the same time, they're thinking about the next season. So the same is with, with writing. Yeah, makes sense. I think we're similar. We're both of us are kind of towards the end, well, different phases of our novels, but both kind of gearing up as well for our next season. So that makes sense. I don't I think that's all my questions. Megan, what about you? Nope, that's it. Well, thank you so much, Hamid. And uh, thanks for being flexible in the time. And it was just yes. really great. 
No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And good luck with all your writing. And yeah, good luck with everything. And uh, everyone who wants to write must know that I think always that everyone is a, has got a story to tell. You know, some people just have got the discipline to sit down and tell the story or find time to tell this story. Others, they just carry with this story and then bring this story <laughs> to hear after you know <laughs> yeah i like that idea um so it's okay if you don't have the discipline because you can carry it with you later <laughs> yeah absolutely thank you so much thanks lovely to meet you Olivia. Bye. all right bye bye and that's it for this week you can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on instagram at marginallypodcast our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com and if you haven't already please subscribe to our newsletter the sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rinkaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.